It's Improbable Research Podcast number 202. Today, we'll talk about research involving sneezing on a full stomach, mustache wax, red hippo sweat, the impossible expertise of self-perceived expertise, and some 2012 Ig Nobel Prize winners. Oh, and also walking in the city. Yes, all of that. This this is Improbable Research, the podcast about research that makes people laugh, then think. Real research about anything and everything from everywhere. Research that's maybe good or bad, important or trivial, valuable or worthless. Compiled for you by the producers of the Ig Nobel Prize Ceremony. I'm Mark Abrams, editor of the magazine Annals of Improbable Research and founder of the Ig Nobel Prize Ceremony. In this episode, we're resurrecting things that many of you never got the chance to hear. And we intend to make lots of new stuff. We can really use your help on that. We started a Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, to fund it. If you become an improbable donor on our Patreon, you'll get special access to improbable things. Improbable access to episodes, audio from the cutting room floor, all sorts of stuff. Details are at www.patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash improbable research. For details about everything we talk about today, visit our website, improbable.com. Medical Research Review with Improbable Dramatic Readings by Melissa Franklin. Here are some medical papers full of improbable diagnoses, techniques, and research. First, a study about satiety sneezes. Autosomal dominant sneezing disorder provoked by fullness of the stomach by ASTB and QAL Saleh published in the Journal of Medical Genetics in 1989. When you say ASTB, is that four letters? A-S-T-B. T-B is the name, last name. Spelled? T-E-E-B-I. T-B, T-E-E-B-I, and Al-Sala give us some background. At a birth defects meeting in 1978, four physicians described an autosomal dominant disorder of nearly uncontrollable paroxysms of sneezing provoked in a reflex fashion by the sudden exposure of a dark, adapted subject to intensely bright light, usually sunlight. That's a pretty dramatic phrase. Nearly uncontrollable paroxysms of sneezing provoked in a reflex fashion. TV, T-E-E-B-I, and Al-Sala give us a twist on that. We report a documented family history of another sneezing disorder, similarly transmitted in an autosomal dominant manner, but provoked by fullness of the stomach. TB, T-E-E-B-I, and Al-Sala tell us about a particular man. Who is a phenotypically normal 32-year-old man. Fullness of the stomach immediately after meals invariably results in three or four uncontrollable sneezes. This phenomenon is also present in his three brothers, one of his two sisters, his father and uncle, and his son, and the grandfather and their dog. TB, T-E-E-B-I, and Al-Sala go into detail. The stomach sneeze reflex in this family has no relation to the type of food and occurs only when the stomach is full to the extent that no more can be eaten. There are usually three or four sneezes, but maybe as many as 15 consecutive sneezes. TB, still spelled T-E-E-B-I, and Al-Sala express hopes for the future. 
After discussing this phenomenon with 22 colleagues, we learned about a further three sporadic cases. We hope that further studies will clarify how many of us sneeze uncontrollably after heavy meals and why. Next, a study about a hidden finger ring. An unusual finding on routine dental pan-oral tomography by S. Lloyd, V. R. Talati, and J. P. Ward, published in the British Gentle Journal. <laughs> the what? The British Dental <laughs> Journal. The Gentle Journal. <clears throat> An unusual finding on routine dental pan-oral tomography by S. Lloyd, V. R. Talati, and J. P. Ward, published in the British Dental Journal in 1994. The authors describe their discovery. Radio-opaque foreign bodies are commonly seen in dental pan-oral tomographs. A case is described of the presentation of a patient with a signet ring lodged in the left nasal cavity, discovered by routine pan-oral tomography in dental practice, and of its subsequent removal by an otorhinolaryngologist. <laughs> Spell that. <laughs> otorhinolaryngologist. Happy with that? Happy. What is tomography? Particles are going to come out of the nasal cavity, and you're going to have a, a machine that looks at where they come. Then they try and do a three-dimensional reconstruction of what they're looking at. Tomography. From the word... <laughs> <laughs> and what is, what is an otorhinolaryngologist? I don't think such a thing exists. I think it's... Loosely translated from a German word. Could it be what used to be called eye, ear, nose, and throat, doctor? What does tomography come from? I know what it is. I just don't know the root. Next, a study about a condition you could call hazardous stiff upper lip. Perioral dermatitis, secondary to the use of a corticosteroid ointment as mustache wax by E.K. Edwards, Jr. and E.K. Edwards, Sr., published in the International Journal of Dermatology in 1987. We couldn't manage to dig up a copy of this thing. What do you think it's about? Well, perioral is around and about the oral cavity. Dermatitis is... Might there be some common word for oral cavity? Mouth. Huh. Mouth? <laughs> Dermatitis is skin. It's mouth skin. Secondary Dermatitis to these, would be some kind of uh, ailment dealing with the skin. Dermatitis. Right? Oh, yeah. So some kind of mouth ailment. Mouth skin ailment. Mouth skin Near ailment. the mouth skin ailment. So if you use this corticosteroid ointment, which is mustache wax, you might get a perioral dermatitis. Oh, use of corticosteroid ointment as mustache wax. Ha! Okay, I get it. That's terrible. This is not nice. A, I'm glad you couldn't find the paper. It's a cautionary tale. It's terrible. Written by two people, each name, the family name Edwards. It's surprising anybody has a mustache in 1987. It's not 1987 anymore. <laughs> On to a study about sensitivity to, or sensitivity about, certain kinds of skin. Islam, Teaching Dermatological Surgery and Porcine Parts, by Lawrence M. Field, published in the journal Dermatologic Surgery in 2001. Dr. Field, based jointly at the University of California, San Francisco, and at Stanford University, explains... 
While participating at the Prakat Beda Kulit Surgery of the Skin, National Indonesian Course of Dermatologic Surgery, organized by Professor Dr. Marwali Harahap, faculty of the University of Medan, Indonesia, attempts to teach suturing techniques and dermatologic surgery were critically compromised by the initial use of cow skins for the demonstrations. These hair-bearing rawhides were impossible to adequately manipulate, bending needles and breaking sutures with complete ease. Dr. Field knew a better way. I have had a long and extensive previous experience using pig's feet and pig's ears in the teaching of dermatologic surgery. The difficulties of using cowhides were transparently obvious to one able to compare. Dr. Field knew that not everyone would be able to use that better way, or rather, he knew that not everyone would know that they could use that better way. However, to those for whom contact with porcine parts had been presumably forbidden, that comparative knowledge was absent. The author's suggestion that the use of porcine parts for educational purposes might well be considered appropriate by religious authorities was immediately accepted, and consultation with Maidlis, the religious governing body, was subsequently obtained. The bureaucratic method found a way to make things work. It was the absolute opinion of the religious governing group that the use of porcine parts for the proper education of dermatologic surgeons when no reasonable alternative to human skin was available was appropriate and not haram, that is to say, forbidden by God, so long as the parts were not ingested. Dr. Field finds that the future, as a result of this, looks bright. In the future, dermatologic surgery courses at the Ruma Saki PKU Muhammadiyah, the Hospital for Society and Developmental Welfare for Muslims, an institution that is non-sectarian in Rongowarsito, Sukarta, Indonesia, will be able to use porcine parts. The hospital staff at all levels will be appraised of the propriety of that usage prior to its introduction and be told the Maleys had researched the problem at the request of the dermatology department and had agreed to its usage. Dr. Field expresses optimism that pig skin will be pleasing, or at least acceptable, to many persons. This opinion is applicable to the entire Islamic world in the teaching of dermatologic surgery and should be applicable to Orthodox Judaism as well. The Red Sweat of the Hippopotamus with improbable dramatic readings by Richard Baguley. The sweat of hippopotami, that's what we'll call the plural of hippopotamus, the red sweat of hippopotami, seems mysterious to many of the people who have looked at that sweat and labored to understand that sweat and its redness. Four chemists say they've cleared up some of that mystery. Refined structure of the hipposudoric and nor hipposudoric acids, pigments of the red sweat of the hippopotamus, by Takatoshi Matsumoto, Yoko Sakaiwa, Masaya Nakata, and Kamiko Hashimoto, published in the journal Chemistry Letters in 2015. Those chemists at Tohoku University and Keio University in Japan explain... Hipposudoric and nor hipposudoric acids are the pigments responsible for the red sweat of hippopotami. These two pigments have been isolated and their structures determined. During the studies, several unique properties of these pigments were found, such as instability in concentrated solutions. Under such conditions, these pigments easily polymerize to produce a mixture of brown compound. But there's still mystery in that red sweat. The mystery is especially deep if, like the people who wrote that report, you are a chemist. The tautomeric structures of these pigments in an undissociated form were also of interest. 
to estimate the percentage of the major tautomer, carbon-13 nuclear magnetic resonance spectral data obtained in an organic solvent was needed. However, that data could not be obtained because the pigments do not dissolve in organic solvents and the concentrated solution of the model compound needed to obtain the carbon-13 nuclear magnetic resonance spectral data could not be prepared due to its instability. Thank you, Richard, for managing to restrain your excitement while you were reading that. It wasn't easy. No. The impossible expertise of self-perceived experts, with improbable dramatic readings by Robin Abrams, David Dunning, who won an Ig Nobel Prize for his landmark study of incompetent people who believe themselves to be competent, has now done a study about people who believe themselves to be experts. The new study is... When Knowledge Knows No Bounds, Self-Perceived Expertise Predicts Claims of Impossible Knowledge by Stav Atir, Emily Rosenzweig, David Dunning, published in the journal Psychological Science in 2015. The authors say, Can people differentiate what they know from what they do not? Several lines of research suggest that people are not always accurate judges of their knowledge and often overestimate how much they know. Dunning and his colleagues run down a list of examples. All of these examples are backed by published studies. Research finds that people commonly judge the accuracy of their judgments too favorably. People typically overestimate how well they perform everyday tasks relative to other people. People tend to think they have a better understanding of how objects work, e.g. a ballpoint pen, than they can demonstrate when that understanding is put to the test. Then there's the simple matter of what you could call, if you wanted to, unknown knowns. At times, people even claim knowledge that they cannot possibly have because the object of their knowledge does not exist, a phenomenon known as overclaiming. For example, in the late 1970s, nearly a third of American respondents expressed an opinion about the 1975 Public Affairs Act when asked about it directly, even though the act was a complete fiction. Approximately a fifth of consumers report having used products that are actually non-existent. Robin, as a professional psychologist, are you familiar with the term overclaiming? Of course I am. Are you just making that up? Of course not. Onward. Dunning and his team did their own experiments, hoping to tease out more detail about these self-perceived experts. Studies 1A and 1B showed that self-perceived financial knowledge positively predicts claiming knowledge of non-existent financial concepts, independent of actual knowledge. Study 2 demonstrated that self-perceived knowledge within specific domains, for example, knowledge about biology, is associated specifically with overclaiming within those domains. What's a domain? A small Australian marsupial. What's a domain? A type of citrus fruit grown only in Malaysia. Do you know what a domain is? Of course I know what a domain is. What is a domain? A domain is an area of achievement. It's not any of those other things. Shh, don't tell. Dunning and the team even tried warning people that some of the questions dealt with things that were concocted. In study three, warning participants that some of the concepts they saw were fictitious did not reduce the relationship between self-perceived knowledge and overclaiming. In study four, boosting people's self-perceived expertise in geography prompted assertions of familiarity with non-existent places, 
which supports a causal role for self-perceived expertise in claiming impossible knowledge. At the end of this paper, the researchers tell how they feel about all of that. Our work suggests that the seemingly straightforward task of judging one's knowledge may not be so simple, particularly for individuals who believe they have a relatively high level of knowledge. Our results suggest that people do not simply consult a mental index that catalogs their knowledge, but instead draw on pre-existing self-conceptions of knowledge to make inferences about what they should or probably do know. For domains of high self-perceived expertise, in other words, on subjects they think they know well, these inferences may induce a sense of familiarity with terms that sound plausibly real but are not. Dunning and his group also mention how this kind of thing might have effects on the world. It is easy to imagine how a tendency to overclaim, especially in self-perceived experts, could have adverse consequences. The great menace is not ignorance, but the illusion of knowledge. David Dunning has achieved a position of great respect in the world of psychology. In the year 2000, he and his graduate student, Justin Kruger, were awarded the Ig Nobel Prize for Psychology. Their report, which won them the prize, was called Unskilled and Unaware of It, How Difficulties in Recognizing One's Own Incompetence Lead to Inflated Self-Assessments. The title of that study is worth repeating. Unskilled and Unaware of It, How Difficulties in Recognizing One's Own Incompetence Lead to Inflated Self-Assessments. That study was published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology in 1999. A year later, George W. Bush became president of the United States, much to the amusement of many psychologists who had read the study called Unskilled and Unaware of It, How Difficulties in Recognizing One's Own Incompetence Lead to Inflated Self-Assessments. Since that time, the so-called Dunning-Kruger effect, that's what other people came to call it, the Dunning-Kruger effect has gained wide recognition and helped many persons cope with the supposedly competent people who surround them. That study in which Dunning and Kruger described the Dunning-Kruger effect begins with the true tale of a profoundly incompetent man. In 1995, MacArthur Wheeler walked into two Pittsburgh banks and robbed them in broad daylight, with no visible attempt at disguise. He was arrested later that night, less than an hour after videotapes of him taken from the surveillance cameras were broadcast on the 11 o'clock news. When police later showed him the surveillance tape, Mr. Wheeler stared in incredulity. But I wore the juice, he mumbled. Apparently, Mr. Wheeler was under the impression that rubbing one's face with lemon juice rendered it invisible to videotape cameras. Dunning and Kruger start out by describing what they hoped to learn. We are trying to explain the fact that people seem to be so imperfect in appraising themselves and their abilities. Perhaps the best illustration of this tendency is the above-average effect, the tendency of the average person to believe he or she is above average, a result that defies the logic of descriptive statistics. Dunning and Kruger did a bunch of experiments, asking volunteers to estimate how skilled they are at doing particular things, and then measuring exactly how good those volunteers actually are at doing those very things. Here's what Dunning and Kruger say they discovered. 1. Incompetent individuals, compared with their more competent peers, dramatically overestimate their ability and performance. 2. Incompetent individuals suffer from deficient metacognitive skills. They are less able than their more competent peers to recognize competence when they see it. B. 
be it their own competence or anyone else's. Dunning and Kruger also explain that competent people usually are very aware of their own limits. Competent people, usually, are all too aware that they're not perfect. Incompetent people, on the other hand, are living, beaming examples of the Dunning-Kruger effect. Dunning and Kruger's famous paper ends with an admission, an admission that Dunning and Kruger, like everybody else, are human. Although we feel we have done a competent job in making a strong case for this analysis, our thesis leaves us with one haunting worry that we cannot vanquish. That worry is that this article may contain faulty logic, methodological errors, or poor communication. Let us assure our readers that to the extent this article is imperfect, it is not a sin we have committed knowingly. Robin, I hope we did a good job describing those things. We'll never know. No, I guess we won't. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The 2012 Ig Nobel Prize winners, at least some of them, with improbable dramatic readings by Jean Burko Gleason. This week, let's look back at some of the winners of the 2012 Ig Nobel Prizes. The prizes, as you know, or probably know, honor achievements that make people laugh, then think. Those 2012 prizes were awarded at the 22nd, first annual Ig Nobel Prize ceremony at Harvard's Sanders Theater. The ceremony was webcast live. Almost all the winners came at their own expense, and several Nobel laureates were there on the stage physically presenting the Ig Nobel Prizes to the Ig Nobel Prize winners. So here are some of those prize-winning achievements. The Ig Nobel Psychology Prize that year was awarded to Anita Erland and Rolf Zwan from the Netherlands, Tulio Guadalupe from Peru, Russia, and the Netherlands for their study called Leaning to the Left Makes the Eiffel Tower Seem Smaller. The study was published in the journal Psychological Science in 2011. It begins with a question. What information do people use to estimate something like the height of the Eiffel Tower? Perhaps they think of the height of another building and then mentally compare that building with the Eiffel Tower. Results from several studies have shown that body posture influences memory retrieval and estimation. The researchers guessed that there might be some pattern to this, some pattern that they could discover and describe. Many studies have provided evidence that people associate their left hand and left visual field with small numbers and their right hand and right visual field with large numbers. We hypothesized that people would make smaller estimates when they lean slightly to the left than they would when they lean slightly to the right. This was a convenient excuse and reason to use a fun piece of equipment and maybe learn something about human nature. 
We use the We Balance Board to manipulate and measure participants' center of pressure, COP. COP is a measure of body posture and balance. Measurements of COP represent the distribution of pressure on a two-dimensional surface. Participants answered 39 estimation questions while standing on the balance board. They were told that they probably did not know the correct answers to the questions, that they therefore would have to provide estimates, and that they had to stand upright during the experiment. Here are some of those questions. What is the height of the Eiffel Tower in meters? How many kilos does an adult elephant weigh? How many number one hits did the Beatles have in the Netherlands? How many kilocalories does a croquette, as a fast food snack, contain? What is the percentage of the world population that is religious? How many different kinds of fungus are there in the Netherlands? What is the length of the bowels of an adult human in meters? What is the percentage of alcohol in traditional vodka? In what year was the Colosseum in Rome built? What is the height of the world's shortest man in centimeters? The researchers hoped that these questions would throw people off balance mentally while those people unconsciously were balancing themselves physically. We wanted participants to think that they were standing upright during the experiment. The computer screen always indicated that participants were standing upright, but we surreptitiously manipulated participants' body posture so that they were leaning slightly to the left, leaning slightly to the right, or standing upright. Things turned out much the way they had hoped for. We predicted that people would make smaller estimates while leaning slightly to the left than they would while sleep. Lean to the left a little and try that sentence again. We predicted that people would make smaller estimates while leaning slightly to the left than they would while leaning slightly to the right. And this prediction was borne out by our results. Didn't that work out better? It's great. Okay. Remarkably, our manipulations of posture influenced participants' estimations even though participants were unaware of their true posture. The Ig Nobel Peace Prize was awarded to the SKN Company from Russia for converting old Russian ammunition into new diamonds. Here's part of a news report from the February 27, 2009 issue of the Russian newspaper Izvestia. Diamonds will be made from ammunition. Oh, feel free to read this one in some sort of accent if you like. Right. I think it's appropriate. <laughs> okay. Diamonds will be made from ammunition with expired shelf life. Plastmas plant in the Chelyabinsk region is accomplishing assembling of a unique line for discarding of ammunition. Very soon the plant will start making super dispersed diamonds and nanocarbon from the explosives of projectiles. Your uh, accent is slipping. Yeah, my accent's waning. Adjust it. All right. In the last few years, super-dispersed diamonds, nano-diamonds, and nano-carbon attracted interest of technical engineers from the most diverse industries from production of abrasive materials to medical industry. High pressure makes the carbon denser. The carbon changes its lattice and turns into diamonds. 
Very fine dust of ordinary carbon is formed during this process. It is also valued very high. In the chamber, it is possible to explode other substances too. For instance, TNT mixed with graphite, depending on which substance it is necessary to produce. Plastmas repairs old artillery projectiles and aviation bombs with expired shelf life. Afterwards, TNT and hexagen from them is used for making products of high technologies. That accent did okay until the very end there. <laughs> the Ig Nobel Acoustics Prize was awarded to Kazutaka Kurahara and Koji Tsukada of Japan for creating the Speech Jammer. The Speech Jammer is a machine that disrupts a person's speech by making them hear their own spoken words at a very slight delay. They wrote a study called Speech Jammer, a system utilizing artificial speech disturbance with delayed auditory feedback. That was published in 2012. In that report, they say, We report on a system, Speech Jammer, which can be used to disturb people's speech. In general, human speech is jammed by giving back to the speakers their own utterances at a delay of a few hundred milliseconds. This effect can disturb people without any physical discomfort and disappears immediately after they stop speaking. How do these scientists cause this to happen? We utilize this phenomenon by combining a direction-sensitive microphone and a direction-sensitive speaker, enabling the speech of a specific person to be disturbed. We discussed practical application scenarios of the system, such as facilitating and controlling discussions. Here's how it works. It is thought that when we make utterances, we not only generate sound as output, but we also utilize the sound actually heard by our ears, called auditory feedback, in our brains. Our natural utterances are jammed when the auditory feedback is artificially delayed. This phenomenon is known as speech disturbance by delayed auditory feedback. Delayed auditory feedback has a close relationship with stuttering. Delayed auditory feedback leads physically unimpaired people to stutter, i.e. speech jamming. They give some detail about their little speech jamming device. With our portable speech jamming gun, the user disturbs the inappropriate speech in public places using a gun-shaped device equipped with a microphone and a speaker. The signals are transmitted by the air in a round-trip manner, i.e. between the gun user and the target. Besides a direction-sensitive microphone and a direction-sensitive speaker, a laser pointer, a distance meter, switches, and a motherboard are fitted in an originally designed acrylic case. The laser pointer is used to set the speech jammer's sight approximately. It is, they say, a handy little device. Users can easily operate the speech jamming function by simply sighting the device toward the target and pulling the trigger switch like a pistol. The Ig Nobel Neuroscience Prize, that's a prize in the field of the study of the brain, was awarded that year to Craig Bennett, Abigail Baird, Michael Miller, and George Walford, all from the USA, for demonstrating that brain researchers, by using complicated instruments and simple statistics, can see meaningful brain activity anywhere, even in a dead salmon. They wrote a study called Neural Correlates of Interspecies Perspective Taking in the Postmortem Atlantic Salmon, an argument for multiple comparisons correction. 
They published this, or rather they presented this, at the 15th annual meeting of the Organization for Human Brain Mapping. That happened in San Francisco in 2009. They describe their work in a way that's fairly technical, but you can probably get the gist of it. Here's the problem that worried them. With extreme dimensionality of functional neuroimaging data comes extreme risk for false positives. Across the 130,000 voxels in a typical fMRI volume, the probability of at least one false positive is almost certain. Proper correction should be completed during the analysis of these data sets, but it is often ignored by the investigators. Imagine that, Gene, investigators ignoring things. Well, you got to watch out for your voxels. 130,000 of them. That's a lot of voxels. That's a lot of voxels. Now, here's how the team decided to attract some attention to the problem they cared about. To highlight the danger of this practice, we completed an fMRI scanning session with a post-mortem, that's dead, Atlantic salmon as the subject. The salmon was shown the same social perspective-taking task that was later administered to a group of human subjects. They say that scientists have the tools right at hand to solve the problem, but that many scientists don't bother using those tools. Sadly, while methods for multiple comparisons correction are included in every major neuroimaging software package, these techniques are not always invoked in the analysis of functional imaging data. And so, they say, quite a lot of scientific studies that use fMRI imaging are probably wrong. The reader of a typical neuroscience fMRI study can't possibly know what percentage of the reported results might be false positives, seriously impairing the interpretability of the findings. That's a tough word to say. I can't say it again. Try it. To il- interpretability. To illustrate the magnitude of the problem, we carried out a real experiment that demonstrates the danger of not correcting for chance properly. At this point, the study gets down to business. Methods. One mature Atlantic salmon, that's Salmo Salar, participated in the fMRI study. The salmon measured approximately 18 inches long, weighed 3.8 pounds, and was not alive at the time of scanning. Foam padding was placed within the scanner's head coil as a method of limiting salmon movement during the scan, but proved to be largely unnecessary as subject motion was exceptionally low. The dead salmon was now comfortably lying down inside the MRI scanner. The salmon was then shown some projected pictures. The MRI scanner then recorded some of the electrical activity that ensued, apparently, in the dead salmon's brain. Stimuli were projected onto a ground glass screen located at the head of the magnet bore by an LCD projector. A mirror directly above the head coil allowed the salmon to observe experiment stimuli. The task administered to the salmon involved completing an open-ended mentalizing task. The salmon was shown a series of photographs depicting human individuals in social situations with a specified emotional valence, either socially inclusive or socially exclusive. The salmon was asked to determine which emotion the individual in the photo must have been experiencing. The dead salmon was shown lots of photographs. The photostimuli were presented in a block design, with each block consisting of four photos presented individually for 
five seconds each, 10 seconds total, followed by 12 seconds of rest. A total of 12 blocks of photo presentation were completed with 48 photos presented during the run. After the brain of the dead salmon had reacted in whatever way it was going to react to the salmon's being shown photographs, in whatever way the photographs would impact the brain of a dead salmon, the scientists reacted to the data, the data spit out by the MRI machine that apparently showed how the brain of the dead salmon was apparently reacting to the salmon's being shown photographs. Either we have stumbled into a rather amazing discovery in terms of post-mortem ichthyological cognition, or there is something a bit off with regard to our uncorrected statistical approach. What we can conclude is that random noise in the data may yield spurious results if multiple testing is not controlled for. It's a nice word, ichthyological, isn't it? I like it. Ichthyological cognition. It's a whole new field. At the very end of their paper, the scientists say how this fits into a larger context. The multiple testing problem is not unique to neuroimaging. Instead, it is an issue that most scientific fields face as data analysis is completed. Any time that multiple tests are completed without proper correction, it has the potential to impact the conclusions drawn from the results. The Ig Nobel Chemistry Prize that year was presented to Johan Peterson of Sweden and Rwanda for solving the puzzle of why, in certain houses in the town of Andersluv, Sweden, people's hair turned green. Johan Peterson did not publish any formal study about this. It was a case of being confronted with a problem, and then, in the best tradition of detectives, solving that problem. Here's part of a December 2011 news report in the publication Science and Technology. New homes turn Swedes' hair green. When several formerly blonde inhabitants of Andersluv in southern Sweden suddenly had green hair, suspicion was immediately directed toward the municipal drinking water. The culprit, however, turned out to be new homes combined with hot showers, reported local newspaper Skånskan. Tests of the initial suspect, the drinking water, were taken from several homes in the area. Copper levels were tested as the metal is known to dye hair green. When the test showed normal copper levels in the water delivered to houses, engineers were confounded. However, left overnight, the copper suddenly skyrocketed to five or ten times the normal amount. Hot water left overnight peeled copper from the pipes and water heaters and into the water. The problems were most severe in new houses where pipes lacked coatings. The samples we took from older houses have lower copper levels, said environmental engineer Johan Pettersson. Inhabitants in the area who wish to avoid an involuntary dye must now wash their hair in cold water or move to an older house. We're going to look at a study called Walking and Rhythmicity. Nicole Sharp, expert on fluid dynamics, you run the website called... FYFD. Say that again. FYFD. The world's most popular website about fluid dynamics. Nicole Sharp is here. We are together exploring this paper, which is called... Walking and Rhythmicity, Sensing Urban Space. We have bongo drums with us. We're doing an experiment. Nicole is controlling the bongo drums. The author of this study is named Philippa Matos. 
She is based at the Bartlett School of Planning at University College London. This is a paper presented at a conference. It was the sixth international conference on walking in the 21st century. This happened in the year 2005. It took place, this conference, in Zurich, Switzerland. Nicole, how does the abstract begin? Walking is a mode of engaging and experiencing places. Through habitual walking and wandering, one does not just move through physical space, but actively take part and contribute to the social and cultural dynamics of a place. On foot, the body participates in places' temporal patterns of activity, and it is an agent in processes of repetitive change in urban places. Now we get into the key passage. Rhythms of body and city merge through the experience of walking. And the next sentence after that is... Walking is in itself a spatial and social rhythm, and through walking one perceives and lives urban places as a constellation of spatial, social, cultural, natural, and other sensory rhythms. Urban rhythms. And the next sentence beyond that... Urban rhythms are everywhere in human activity and life in urban places. If we skip down to the almost final paragraph in what is a very long abstract in this paper, Nicole, please present for us that sentence. From a walking perspective, this study presents urban places as polyrhythmic fields. Polyrhythmic fields, what are those? Please, uh, from a scientific point of view, please. Well, if I'm going to break apart that word, it's going to mean a field with many rhythms. And what is a field? They might mean field in a different way than what I mean it as there. How do they mean it here? It's almost more of a um, poetic sense in this case. We walk through actual fields, fields of grain. We can have fields of many sounds as we go through an urban landscape. This feeds into a sentence a little bit further along, still in this long abstract. The paper reflects on walking and wandering in the city as key condition through which rhythmicity of places may be experienced and perceived. Rhythmicity, Nicole. What is rhythmicity in the city? Rhythmicity. No, 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 no bongo, please explain to the best of your ability, having just looked at this paper briefly. Rhythmicity of places. What is rhythmicity of places? The full rhythmic identity of a place. You don't really know what she's talking about, in other words. No. Let's move to page five in this paper. Under the heading Walking Practices, the author says, Walking is the best form to explore and exploit the city. There's a section heading here called Walking as Condition of Perception. What does that mean? So I've heard, and maybe I've experienced this not so much walking as I have on other forms of transit, but at least uh, when I ride a bicycle, I experience a place differently than when I drive in a car. I think you could make the same kind of an argument for a city. You experience the city differently walking through it and perceiving the sounds and the smells at that slower pace than you get whenever you go through it quickly in a car. Does the city have rhythmicity when you are bicycling through it? Generally speaking, I'm not a huge fan of bicycling in cities, but the rhythmicity that I'm used to dealing with in that sense is more the rhythm of the cars and the horns. <laughs> Let's take a look at what the author says here. Whilst a physical activity in the city in the way of one foot after the other, walking is an elemental way of perceiving and living the urbane. What does that mean? Perceiving and living the urbane. What is the urbane? 
No, no, no. You're looking at me in a way that's quite striking, but I'm afraid it doesn't record well on a sound machine. I'm not entirely sure what they're trying to say there. Well, let's move on to the next page. There's a section called Walking as Rhythm. Could you uh, treat us to a little piece of that? As mentioned earlier, walking is in particular a temporal mode of interaction in urban space and itself rhythmical, part of compound of rhythms that unfold in urban places. Do go on. While walking in the city, one experiences everyday places undirectional time, a time which is repetitious like the swing of the pendulum calibrated to internal biological rhythms as well as to observable periodicities in nature. These are unusual phrases to find in an academic paper that's not a physics or engineering paper. Tell me a little bit about this phrase, repetitious like the swing of the pendulum. How is the swing of the pendulum repetitious? That's an easy one. How is the swing of the pendulum repetition? It continues going back and forth, generally speaking, until friction and other forces slow it down. How about when it's, as the paper here says, calibrated to internal biological rhythms? That means that it's going to go back and forth with your internal biological rhythms, whatever those may be. Don't you have a lot of internal biological rhythms? So I'm told. I think probably the, the famous one, though, is the circadian rhythm. Have you no heartbeat? There's also the rhythm of your breathing. And let's look now at the section called place rhythms. It is not just walking that is of inherent rhythmical nature, but also places are. It is while informally and reflexively walking in the city that one meets urban places as polyrhythmical fields of interaction. Yes, and 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 I'm being rhythmic here. What does the author say about that? Urban places are much more than just urban form. They are temporal milieus and essentially rhythmical. Milieus? Milieus. How are they essentially rhythmical? They tend to repeat in time. There's a section near the bottom. Resultant social activity rhythms are temporal patterns of all other social activities that are neither necessary nor optional. Sequential patterns of common yet spontaneous social activities that casually happen in urban space as a result of encounters of people performing necessary activities or, on the contrary, optionally spending time in urban space. Were there some commas in that sentence somewhere? Let's see. Were there any at all? I don't think so. I don't see any, no. There was a period at one point. Might the universe be a better place if there were some commas in that sentence? I personally believe in spicing with just the right amount of comma. You believe in commentary? I think I'm giving commentary right now. Ah. Yet its rate of recurrence is not rigidly uniform, instead occurring with relative elasticity over time. What does that mean? Examples are the typical public space business meeting, meeting with friends, street interviewing, street trading, sports class at the park, jogging after work, etc. And now as time is moving on, rhythmically and not, let's skip ahead. We get to perhaps the heart of the argument made in this study. 
urban sound rhythms are murmur of crowds, crescendo and decrescendo noise of approaching and leaving sound of cars, planes, helicopters or motorcycles, birds singing, dogs barking to bypassers, singing and playing on the streets, yelling of salesmen at markets, ringing bells of churches, clocks or private home, and olfactory rhythms are, for instance, early morning perfume of people passing, moist and earth smell after a rainy night, lunch and dinner neighbors cooking time, spring smells of flowers and grass in the park. Nicole, you have read during your time in graduate school and in the time since spent as a working scientist, you have read hundreds, maybe thousands of academic papers. Would you say that this one is written in a way that's typical of how academic papers are written? Well, you have to remember that my academic papers are a very different variety from the uh, more social science side of things. More or less rhythmical. Hmm. I would say that scientific papers usually have their own rhythm to them. It's not necessarily a a rhythm that keeps you nice and awake. It's not necessarily a driving beat. Sometimes it's kind of sleep-inducing. But it's still a rhythm. Mm -hmm. And this paper that we've just explored, wandered through, taken a stroll along the length of? Well, I think that last bit went straight on into like novel writing poetry. Let's finish up with a look toward the very end, the culminating portion of this study. Urban rhythms as a research theme proposes a new mode of observing and experientially studying urban spaces. It focuses on the inherent dynamics of places as complement to its static patterns of physical forms and surfaces. Could you sum that up for us? We can use urban rhythms to describe a place. I think that was the point of this paper. You've been listening, if you've been listening, to Improbable Research, the podcast about research that makes people laugh, then think. For details about what we talked about, visit our website, improbable.com. We could very much use your help so that we can make new podcast episodes and other improbable and Ig Nobel stuff. Details are at our website and at www.patreon.com slash improbable research. If you become an improbable donor, you'll get special access to improbable things. I'm Mark Abrams. Today, Melissa Franklin, Richard Baguley, Robin Abrams, Jean Burko Gleason, and Nicole Sharp lent their voices, expertise, opinions, and personal quirks with dramatic readings from research studies you may have overlooked. It's possible that Seth Glicksman is the improbable production assistant. It's possible that the mysterious John Shedler, or maybe the subterranean Bruce Petchek, did the audio engineering of this episode. Next time on this podcast, we'll look at something or other. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>